The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Gia Kokotakis with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for August 12, 2023. This week, Lawfare coverage discussed the recent four-count indictment of former President Donald Trump by a D.C. grand jury for conspiring to overturn the 2020 election results. For today's Archive episode, I picked an episode from June 16, 2020, in which Jacob Schultz sat down with Lawrence Douglas to discuss whether Trump would concede if he lost the 2020 election. They covered the vulnerabilities in our electoral system, historical examples of mishaps in presidential elections, how to think about the president's hostility toward elections, and Trump's hostility toward mail-in voting. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, June 16th, 2020. The 2020 presidential election is less than five months away. As the election inches closer and closer, concerns have grown about the possibility that President Trump, should he lose, would refuse to recognize the legitimacy of the result. How can we think about that risk? Do we have adequate statutory and constitutional guardrails to protect us from all sorts of electoral catastrophe? I sat down with Lawrence Douglas, James J. Grossfeld, Professor of Law, Jurisprudence, and Social Thought at Amherst College, and author of the new book, Will He Go? Trump and the Looming Election Meltdown in 2020. We talked about vulnerabilities in our electoral system, historical examples of mishaps in presidential elections, and how to think about the president's continued hostility toward elections, and in particular, mail-in voting. It's the Lawfare Podcast. June 16th, Lawrence Douglas on presidential election concessions. I want to start with a fact that you note, which is something that I think a lot of us take for granted, but you sort of introduce an additional distinction to. And so you note that every single presidential election has seen a peaceful and uncontested transition to the Oval Office for the winner. But you take the claim a little bit further. You write that it's not only that every losing incumbent has submitted to their loss, like submitted to their fate, but they've actually conceded defeat. Talk a little bit about that history and why that distinction matters. 
Right. So um, the distinction I was drawing between a submission and concession was submission is a kind of de facto recognition that you've lost. You could imagine like in a sports team, uh, even if uh, the team feels that they've been kind of cheated out of victory, they kind of walk off the field, heads uh, hanging low. Uh, they realize that they've lost. There's nothing more they can do about it. Concession strikes me as a, uh, a much more kind of uh, normatively interesting act because what is happening when someone concedes is they recognize the legitimacy of their loss. That is, they recognize that there was a fair competition, and in this fair competition, they did not prevail. And it's a, it's a kind of a, it's both sort of a, a, a humble and it's also kind of a pretty remarkable gesture because I really think that an American, that any kind of constitutional a tradition can't really exist without a willingness of the losers to concede. That is to recognize that the process by which their loss arose was a legitimate one. Right. So before we get into into the details of the book, I think there's a sort of initial so what question that's actually related to the first one. So per the 20th Amendment, Regardless of whether there's some sort of improbable delay in the election or refusal to concede, Nancy Pelosi on January 20th of next year becomes the acting president. So bracketing any sort of apocalyptic predictions, what's the damage that's done if an incumbent fades out without that sort of performative concession? Well, one thing I guess we should point out is, first of all, just as a kind of a narrow technical matter, it's not necessarily the case that Nancy Pelosi would become uh, president um, if there is no president-elect come noon on January 20th. I mean, one thing that she would have to do, she would actually have to resign her post as a speaker. And so that's, you know, that's something where it's not, I don't think we can just take it for granted that she would do that. But let's think about that period between January 6th, which is when Congress meets for the purposes of um, tallying and certifying the final electoral count, and January 20th, which is when the next president is supposed to be inaugurated, or uh, in the case of a re-election, freshly inaugurated. There's a lot of mischief that can take place. I mean, I don't want to engage in these kind of apocalyptic scenarios. Uh, as you know, uh, this book is not meant to be a kind of a seven days in May scenario in which I imagine, uh, you know, this phalanx of rogue Secret Service agents surrounding a, a president who's, you know, locked himself in the Oval Office. That's really not what I'm imagining. Uh, but what I can certainly imagine is that, um, and I don't think I'm alone in this uh, imagining, that um, you know, there's an opportunity for a lot of civil unrest in this country. I mean, you have a president who right now in the middle of this COVID pandemic is talking about liberating uh, states. And we saw that in the wake of his tweets about liberating the states, we see these really kind of very disturbing images of people with their automatic weapons inside the state house in Lansing, Michigan. And, you know, I think the opportunities for violence are not to be uh, overlooked, uh, especially if you have a president who is willing to really play constitutional brinkmanship. And that's something we've never seen before in this country. I mean, we've never we've had contested elections. We've had contested elections in which arguably the person who ended up conceding was sort of cheated out of victory. 
And yet we've never seen a president willing to really push things to the maximum. And that's kind of a very sort of dangerous state of affairs. And if I can just go on for one more moment, you know, one of the things that I think came out or became really clear to me in writing the book is I kind of asked myself, you know, what kind of what kind of constitutional materials, what kind of constitutional norms or fed or legal procedures do we have in place in order to secure the peaceful succession of power if you do have a president who is willing to play this kind of uh, brinkmanship? And what I realized is we don't really have those materials. And, you know, one of the things I try to point out is the Constitution, it presupposes the peaceful succession of power. It does not secure the peaceful succession of power. Right. So now I'm interested in exploring those pinch points a bit. So basically you spend most of the book exploring these sort of vulnerabilities in our electoral system and, and the historical examples of when they've sort of come to cause problems. And I want to start actually with something that I think maybe best encapsulates the this sort of gestalt message of the book, which is the epigraph. So the epigraph is, it says, it's a quote by Tom Stoppard. It says, it's not the voting that's democracy, it's the counting. So what is what did you mean with the inclusion of that? And what does that sort of portend about the the vulnerabilities that you you draw upon later in the book? Well, it's unfair to say that democracy is a very unusual form of governance and that for a democracy to work, uh, you know, there, <laughs> this is all kind of uh, pretty self-explanatory, but it is, you know, in general, there's the notion of majoritarian rule. And we have to basically have procedures that uh, make sure that the majoritarian voice is heard in an election. And what is absolutely critical is for the people to have faith in the integrity and the transparency of those procedures. And, you know, one of the things that obviously I'm not the only one to observe this, one of the things that Trump has done is he has worked uh, very uh, determinedly to erode faith in the transparency and the integrity of those procedures. And it's, it's a very kind of, again, sort of a dangerous and uh, unusual situation because it's unmistakably the case that um, given the fact that once you're in power, you have a lot of perks and there are a lot of great things for being an elected official. And so the temptation for fraud is very, very great. And we've seen elections in the past, particularly on the local level, in which people engage in these kind of age old practices such as uh, ballot stuffing. And again, that's the kind of thing that uh, Tom Stoppard gets at with his quote, that it's about the counting. You really want to make sure that the counting of the votes follows a procedure that we have a faith in. What you have Trump doing, though, is it's not so much that Trump is engaging in corrupt practices. It is not to say that he wouldn't try to do something like that. Obviously, he has solicited foreign interference with the election. But the thing that he's doing, which is more novel and in a way really kind of a perilous game to play, is he's eroding confidence in procedures that are actually functioning properly. That is there really doesn't seem to be a tremendous amount of fraud when it comes to our presidential, recent presidential elections. And yet here we have someone in the Oval Office who is working systematically to erode confidence in the uh, electoral results, uh, such that in the case that he loses, he can claim that uh, it's the product of fraud. And that strikes me as a, a, a kind of an unprecedented act in American history. 
It's not the situation where someone is trying to steal the election. It's that someone is trying to actually undercut an outcome which might be an accurate one. Right. So before we get more to Trump, I'm I'm curious about the historical examples that you cite. So what are the times when our presidential election system has actually been tested and flaws have been exposed? And, and in those situations, what was it that sort of rescued the election from the brink? Was it sort of a, an intricacy in a statute or a court ruling or, or was it something else? I, I think, again, I, I kind of wish it were the case that we could say, oh, look how this law kind of kicked in that um, solved what would otherwise be an intractable and potentially, you know, sort of a dangerous election meltdown. I don't think that is the case. I mean, certainly your listeners will recall the election of uh, 2000, uh, either from their own personal experience or having read about it. I mean, this is the Bush v. Gore election. This is the one that uh, in which uh, the Supreme Court stopped in and terminated the recount in Florida as uh, Bush was clinging to a, what was a 537 vote lead in that state. And, you know, many people say, oh, well, isn't that an example of the Supreme Court, you know, for better or worse? I mean, certainly it was a very partisan decision, but to their credit, is it not the case that they stepped in and stopped an election from really melting down? And I would say, no, it was not the Supreme Court that was responsible for ending that potential election catastrophe. It was Al Gore. Again, it was Al Gore who decided to accept the Supreme Court's decision. Now, you might say, well, isn't that what everyone has to do? They have to accept Supreme Court decisions. And the answer, again, is what what does have to mean? There's no law that forces you to do so. And if you had someone who was engaged in constitutional brinkmanship, if you take Al Gore out of the equation and slot in Donald Trump, you have a very, very different outcome in 2000. And the other year in which we really courted electoral catastrophe was in 1876. And this was the kind of notorious um, Hayes-Tilden election that some of your listeners might recall from times of studying American history. Uh, And this was one in which, again, we could sort of go into the, um, to the thicket of the mess, if you'd like. Uh, but this is one in which they were kind of contested electoral certificates where three separate states sent in different electoral certificates to Congress. Uh, so, for example, Florida sent one electoral certificate for Hayes and another one for Tilden. Uh, Louisiana did the same thing. South Carolina did the same thing. And depending on which certificate Congress is going to respect, that would determine the outcome of the election. And Congress found itself, because it was divided in ways very similar to the Congress we have now, you had a Republican Senate and a House controlled by the Democrats, Congress found itself in a paralyzed condition. And uh, again, some last second compromise was worked out. And when I mean last second, I mean two days before the presidential inauguration was meant to occur, there was a last second compromise. But again, that compromise only worked because Sam Tilden was willing to concede. And again, I think if you slot a Donald Trump into the position of a Sam Tilden, you have a complete electoral meltdown. So explain a little bit what was the sort of the root problem in 1876. It's something that I don't think people tend to think a whole lot about, but is an interesting feature of our presidential election system. 
Right. So I think, you know, we all know that we have this very um, arcane and I would say kind of grossly anachronistic method of electing the president. Uh, we have this electoral college and we tend to think that everything of any significance takes place on uh, November 3rd. But that's actually not the case. Basically, in early December uh, is when, by federal law, the electors meet in their respective states and they cast their electoral college votes for whoever basically carried the popular vote in that state. And in 1876, I mean, this was the time of uh, Reconstruction in the South, and you had this, uh, this intense controversy between Republican, Republican governments that were occupying uh, states and uh, the Democrats in the state. And without going into too much detail, we can say that basically the Democrats cast their electoral college votes for uh, Tilden, and then the Republicans cast their electoral college votes for Hayes. And the thing that I want to emphasize about that with those three states, with, the, with again, the election hanging in the balance. And so you had this completely bizarre situation, which is when it became the responsibility of Congress to uh, count the electoral college votes, they had these competing certificates from three different states. Um, typically, when Congress convenes in a joint session in early January to count electoral college votes, it's kind of a pro forma exercise. It usually doesn't take more than a half hour for this to happen. But suddenly, uh, Congress didn't know what to do because they had these competing uh, certificates from three different states. And again, because Congress itself is divided and these states then were just uh, were divided. This led to a kind of a paralytic condition. And the reason I think that is quite extraordinary is you have kind of the same exact uh, scenario brewing today. If you look at the three states that are probably going to be the swing states in 2020, if you look at uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, remember these are the three states that uh, secured the victory for Trump in 2016 by a total, by a total of 70,000 votes. And if you look at those three states, they all share the same kind of political profile in that Republicans control the state legislature and Democrats control the governorships. And again, the reason I think that is... Um, is potentially explosive situation is it increases the likelihood that like in 1876, you could get contrasting that is competing or contradictory electoral certificates coming from those three states with the presidential election in the balance. So one other issue you explore is the problem of faithless electors. Talk a bit about what that phrase refers to and what the challenges are that it presents. Well, the, uh, the faithless elector problem is, again, it's one of these things that is, uh, it, it's something that kind of is endemic to this bizarre way that we go about electing presidents. Namely, these electors uh, nowadays are basically figureheads. They're usually kind of party muckety-mucks who um, are meant to perform a ceremonial function, namely casting their vote for whoever within that state uh, they're basically pledged to the candidate and they will then vote for that candidate if uh, that candidate carries the popular vote in the state. But at the same time, uh, they're individuals and they can 
go rogue, or they can become what you described as faithless, namely uh, engaging in some kind of independent act of, of judgment, casting the vote however they choose. So, for example, in 2016, we had a large number of, uh, of these so-called faithless electors. We had 10 who either cast their vote faithlessly or tried to do so. And uh, in that particular case, it didn't have any outcome. It didn't affect the outcome of the election, which is not to say that it couldn't happen. But one thing that it did do is that now this term, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments about a faithless elector case. Could you talk a little bit about what were the exact fact patterns that led to the, the case that the court heard in mid-May? And how did oral arguments go? So it was actually uh, two cases that the court was hearing. So one arose coming out of Colorado and the other one arose coming out of Washington state and Colorado and Washington both had uh, put into place laws attempting to bind these electors, basically saying that, Hey, if you're going to be functioning as elector, you have to be, uh, you have to vote according to the outcome of the popular vote. Uh, you can't just kind of go rogue. And I think there are 32 states in the District of Columbia have such laws. And uh, in the case of Colorado, there was a, um, actually, there were these three electors. Um, one of them was Michael Baca, and, um, and Baca ended up uh, going rogue, and he was replaced. Uh, he actually was pledged to Hillary Clinton. Clinton won the state pretty handily. He wanted to vote for Kasich. He was part of this kind of national movement that was looking for an alternative to uh, Donald Trump. And he ended up being replaced. And then he brought a suit saying, hey, I'm an elector. I have a constitutional right to vote uh, the way I want to. And the state law is unconstitutional. And a divided appellate court in a federal uh, court uh, agreed with him. This uh, federal court panel in a two to one vote said, yeah, this Colorado statute is unconstitutional because it constrains his constitutionally vested discretion to vote as he wants. Washington state had a very similar kind of case. And there, the Washington uh, State Supreme Court came to exactly the opposite conclusion. They concluded, no, 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 states are authorized to uh, constrain their electors. And so when you had these uh, contrasting uh, decisions from different courts, ended up before the U.S. Supreme Court. There's an oral argument just a couple weeks ago uh, in that oral argument, which was, I should mention, uh, merrily free of any kind of flushing noises in the background. We saw that the Supreme Court is is likely to uphold the statutes that constrain the electors. Uh, I thought it was a pretty interesting oral argument. Uh, Larry Lessig, he made an argument supporting the right of electors to do as they uh, want. And I think it's fair to say that most of the constitutional materials uh, support his case. Um, and yet it seemed pretty clear that the Supreme Court, even the originalists among the Supreme Court, uh, had no stomach for allowing electors to uh, potentially um, create chaos in an election. So, uh, in fact, I think it was uh, Brett Kavanaugh in one of, in while he was questioning Lessig, he said something like, uh, we like to adhere to an avoid chaos principle of judging. So it seems likely that the court will uphold these laws that constrain electors. But that doesn't necessarily solve the problem of the uh, rogue elector, I have to say, or the faithless elector. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So when... Lessig and when the Tenth Circuit is talking about a constitutionally vested interest, what exactly do they mean? Where where does that interest derive from? And, and this is sort of one of the interesting features of the of the book is that there's I think a misconception maybe that the Constitution is sort of a gives guardrails that confer sort of stability legitimacy to elections, but in reality, in this case, if you were to indulge the the argument made by Lessig and made by the Colorado elector, then it actually sort of does the opposite. Yeah, exactly. It would be incredibly, it would be very potentially very, very destabilizing if one were to be faithful to uh, constitutional principles in this regard, which again, it sort of also reveals the, I, I think some of the deep problems with originalist jurisprudence. So uh, I don't know what it means to have a jurisprudence which says we're going to be faithful to the original meanings of the constitution, unless we don't like those original meanings. But the original meanings seem to be you know, pretty clear that the electors were meant to be people of independent judgment. That was the reason why the uh, framers of the constitution created the electoral college in the first place. Uh, there were debates at the time as to whether, uh, for example, there should be a direct popular vote for the presence of the United States. And the framers felt that, that the people um, wouldn't be sufficiently informed about the candidates. They'd be ignorant about the candidates. So they would be kind of prone to or vulnerable to a demagoguery. And so it was important to have people of high standing of who've had attained a high education who would be able to make this important deliberative judgment. And that's what the electors were supposed to do. And uh, quickly the system moved away from that into the system we have now in which the electors are basically just these figureheads who are pledged the candidates who carry the votes, uh, whoever wins uh, the popular vote in the state. And so the original logic of the electoral college disappeared about 200 years ago. And if we were to uh, to uh, revive that original logic, it would arguably be, be pretty dangerous for our democracy today. And so you mentioned that you you think regardless of what the Supreme Court does, it doesn't solve the the faithless elector problem. Why is that? Well, um, I, I guess there are a couple of reasons why it might not solve the faithless elector problem. One of them is um, I, I sort of implicitly suggested before when I, I think I mentioned that, that there were 32 states in the District of Columbia have uh, created these laws that constrain uh, electors, but that leaves 18 states without those laws. And uh, one of the swing states uh, that we were discussing, Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania doesn't have a law that constrains uh, electors. And so, for example, if for some reason, again, we had an incredibly 
uh, tight election, you know, something like what we saw in 2000, and we suddenly saw uh, electors in uh, Pennsylvania go rogue, it's uh, possible that those electors could, you know, basically create an electoral crisis. And there was really nothing you can do at that point, uh, because there really wouldn't have been a, a legislative act put in place prior to their voting that would have been able to uh, remove them. Yeah, so this leads to one of the related pinch points, which you bring up. And so you make the claim in the book that we think of when we go to the polls on November 3rd, that it's this national process. And in some ways, sure, that's right. There's a national track. But you make the point that there really is no such thing as a national electoral process. What do you mean by that? Well, for one thing, you know, the presidential election is basically conducted in, you know, more than 8,000 electoral uh, precincts in the United States. And so it's not like we have really kind of this federalized election process. It's all run basically on the local level. So that's one thing that is, you know, quite remarkable. The other thing that I also just mentioned about um, November 3rd, and this is, I think, connects to one of the scenarios I discuss in the book about how things could go very sideways in 2020. It also connects to, for example, um, some things we've heard from the president today um, in forms of Twitter, uh, which is, you know, given the COVID uh, pandemic, we're more than likely going to see tens of millions of Americans voting by absentee ballots and by mail-in ballots. And those mail-in ballots, um, each state basically has their own protocols for counting uh, these mail-in ballots. Uh, in the sense that each state can basically set the date at which these mail-in ballots have to be submitted. Uh, each state can set the date uh, by which these mail-in ballots can be counted. And all this increases the likelihood, especially, again, in a closely contested election. It increases the likelihood that we will not know the outcome of the election on November 3rd, because it really will take until the time that the state's complete what's called their canvas of the votes, that is their full counting of all these absentee provisional mail-in ballots that will really be able to uh, say who won the presidency. And I I don't think it's any kind of uh, accident that we see Trump already working very, very uh, aggressively to challenge the legitimacy of these mail-in ballots. These mail-in ballots tend to be used uh, predominantly in urban areas, urban areas which traditionally vote more democratic. And as these uh, mail-in ballots get uh, counted post-election day, we can see the results shift very dramatically in the direction of uh, democratic candidates. Uh, there's, this is a phenomenon that is called a blue shift. It's been pretty well documented. And uh, Trump has been on board with challenging this uh, blue shift as a legitimate process. We saw it in 2018, for example, during the midterm elections. Yeah, I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. So there's a pretty prominent example of, of when a blue shift ended up actually flipping a Senate seat. Did first describe that election and what was the reaction when, when that happened among those who perhaps were, were dissatisfied with the result? Well, I mean, for one thing, I mean, there were a couple of ones that were uh, pretty dramatic in terms of demonstrating this blue shift. So one of them was in, um, in Florida. And in Florida, this was in the midterm elections. This is the, 
so the midterm election in which uh, DeSantis won and in which uh, Rick Scott won. And um, what we saw there was, for example, I think in the case of Rick Scott, I think he had like a 57,000 vote uh, margin of victory on election day. And by the time that the state uh, finished counting all the mail-in ballots, I believe that had uh, dropped to about 10,000 votes or so. And then in the case of Arizona, there I think it was that that was with uh, Martha, uh, Martha McSally. Uh, she had enjoyed a 15,000 vote lead. And uh, by the time that the state had completed its uh, canvas, uh, she now found herself uh, defeated by, I don't know, it was about 55,000 votes. So it was a very dramatic blue shift. And Republicans weren't simply dismayed by this. They tried to uh, insist that there was something untoward going on, that there was something uh, illegal, uh, that uh, a hoax had been perpetrated, that all these mail-in ballots, it's impossible for uh, so many ballots to, to have such a dramatic uh, effect on the outcome. And so, for example, you had uh, Trump tweeting that the election day results in Florida had to be respected, that this erosion of the lead for uh, Rick Scott could only be explained in terms of an influx of fraudulent votes. And uh, now you see him doing the same exact thing with a, well, actually with great regularity uh, right, right now. He's trying to prepare his supporters to believe that any uh, blue shift that results from the counting of uh, mail-in ballots has to be an indication of uh, fraud. And so, you know, let's go back to our the, the three states that we said were swing states. Um, they're Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And we already observed that the legislature there the legislatures are controlled by Republicans. The governors are Democrats. And you can imagine that in all three states, let's assume that Trump has a, um, a small, a very small lead on uh, November 3rd. Uh, but that lead uh, erodes as um, the state finishes its canvases. And by the time it finished counting all these absentee and mail-in ballots, it seems that Biden has carried all three of those states. Now, from the moment, from the moment that the polls uh, closed on November 3rd, Trump has been uh, aggressively tweeting that he has been reelected and that none of these uh, mail-in ballots can be trusted, that they're all contaminated with fraud. And you could certainly imagine that that argument gains traction with uh, Republican legislators in those three respective states. And you could imagine, again, that those legislators then certify uh, Trump as the winner of that state based on the November 3rd results, and that they then certify his electors as as the uh, valid um, electoral certificate coming from the state. And then you can also imagine the governors coming along, these Democratic governors, and saying, what are you doing? You're trying to steal this election out from under us. Uh, you have disenfranchised tens of thousands of perfectly legitimate voters. And you can imagine these Democratic governors certifying the state results, which show that Biden has carried the states and sending a different electoral certificate to Congress. We now have, just like in 1876, a divided Congress. We have, uh, assuming that the Senate uh, remains in the hands of the Republicans and that the House remains in the hands of Democrats, you have complete stalemate. And that is... That is the electoral meltdown that I could imagine happening. 
And once you find yourself in that situation, it's not really clear how you walk it back. Well, so one of the the interesting things revealed, so in your last answer, you mentioned that the place where the buck kind of stops is with the Congress. So we've talked about the role of the Supreme Court in 2000 and sort of determining who is the rightful victor in Florida. And we've talked about the role of the president and conceding or not conceding. But there's a third branch of government involved. And one thing that you write is that any sort of trouble more or less could be sniffed out by Congress, by congressional action. What do you mean by that? Let's assume, for example, that that the Democrats, uh, again, it might be an unlikely scenario, but let's say they capture the Senate and they hold on to the House. Then I think Trump's um, refusal to concede isn't going to get him all that far. And I think at some point that the, and even if you have these, let's say, uh, competing electoral certificates submitted from our three swing states, I think at some point the, uh, probably the Congress will come along and uh, validate the certificates that uh, give the electoral votes in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania to Biden. And he will be the elected president. He will be the president-elect. Now, Trump can make an awful lot of chaos and he can do potentially destructive things with Twitter and um, calling out his supporters. But I think he'll be constrained in what he can do in terms of trying to uh, stay in power um, or to really kind of lead to a full electoral meltdown. The danger, again, really arises when you have this divided Congress and in which you have one uh, body, let's say the House, uh, recognizing one set of electoral certificates and the Senate recognizing the other. And when this happened back in 1876, uh, in the Hayes-Tilden election, uh, Congress realized that there has to be some kind of legislative solution to this type of condition. And so Congress spent the better part of a decade trying to shape one. And in 1887, they framed something called the Electoral Count Act. And this Electoral Count Act, which remains on the books, it was meant to um, help Congress troubleshoot any kind of future repeat of a Hayes-Tilden-like mess. And I think it's fair to say that the Electoral Count Act is a legislative uh, disaster. It's basically incoherent. It is extremely hard for someone even with, uh, even who's very proud of their reading comprehension skills to make heads and tails of what the Electoral Count Act uh, says. And that's obviously not good. I mean, if the law that was passed that was meant to help you solve intractable electoral disputes is itself gibberish and supports competing interpretations of what its mandates are, then it really isn't helping us at all. And so we're still left with Congress as being the final arbiter, and yet Congress having no basic legislative or constitutional statutory guidance as to how it's meant to solve a, a real nasty dispute. Okay, so this all sounds in some ways fairly dark. You know, the one major statutory intervention that we've had is inadequate and difficult to to see how it would parse an actual dispute. What can be done? What are the actual reforms that we could undertake? Probably not before 2020, but but going forward, is it a total lost cause or are there things that we could seek to emulate, measures we could seek to change? 
I, I don't think it's a lost cause. Uh, as you suggest, though, I think it's probably a lost cause for a 2020. And as, you know, unfortunately is the case in uh, many other avenues in life, it's often when you encounter a, um, a catastrophic failure of a system that the resolve to uh, reform that system finally materializes. So, you know, it is possible that if something goes really bad in 2020, that the silver lining, if there is one, is that uh, Congress will try to get us act together to uh, create some kind of better statutory fix. And the kind of better statutory fix would be something, you know, along the lines of, um, I mean, it seems very, very problematic to leave the solution of an electoral dispute to a partisan body. I mean, that seems very problematic. Uh, what a number of other uh, countries have done, actually countries that have often relied on American electoral guidance uh, using American electoral experts, is they have created these basically these kind of nonpartisan impartial bodies that are uh, empowered to adjudicate electoral disputes. Now, one thing about that is uh, basically given the Constitution, those bodies would Ultimately, unless you were kind of making a constitutional amendment for technical reasons, that body would basically be advisory. That is, Congress would ultimately have to make the final uh, votes about um, the electoral, uh, about who won in the electoral college. But at least it would be, I think, a helpful step to say uh, that we need some kind of uh, impartial body to do this. Now, I suppose one thing you can say is, why don't we already have that impartial body in the form of uh, the Supreme Court? And in a sense, it's kind of a complicated answer to that. One thing is we've obviously seen the Supreme Court get highly politicized in recent years, but kind of as a more narrow, again, sort of technical legal matter, it seems that the Electoral Count Act specifically uh, sought to exclude the Supreme Court from playing any substantive role in the resolution of electoral disputes that ends up in Congress's lap. Now, obviously, given a very, very, you know, hyper-partisan politics we see now, the idea of creating an impartial body uh, looks like a very, very difficult thing to do. But that's why it's probably good to kind of project it out into the future, to create some kind of body. So, you know, if you recall your John Rawls, uh, the political theorist uh, who talked about, you know, making these decisions behind a veil of ignorance. This is also parlance that the electoral law expert uh, Ned Foley has used. If you imagine, you know, Congress trying to kind of project out into the future resolutions of electoral conflicts in which no one really has a direct stake in the outcome, maybe it becomes easier to try to shape some kind of body that would be um, impartial and neutral and expert. And that, I think, is all we got. Thank you very much. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and share us widely. Your podcast is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patia Howe, and your music is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening.
Listen to this Acast show ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.